So we're going we're gonna to look at Exodus 16, but before we look at Exodus 16, and in, in, in Exodus 16, it's, it's, the, it's the time in the wilderness whenever the, the children of God are complaining because they're hungry, and the Lord provides for them manna from heaven, and that's what we're going to look at. But before we get into that, I just want to read this poem by Gordon Parks. It says, After many snows, I was home again. Time had withered down to mere hills, the great mountains of my childhood. Raging rivers I once swam, trickled now like gentle streams. And the wide road curving on to China, or Kansas City, or perhaps Calcutta, had now withered to a crooked path of dust, ending abruptly at the county burying ground. Only, only the giant who was my father remained the same. A hundred strong men strained beneath his coffin when they bore him to his grave. And so if you notice the picture of this, one of the pictures of this poem is that there's a child. And he's thinking back to how he used to see everything when he was a child. And he goes back to his hometown and everything is different. It says there that the hills that he would look at as a five, six-year-old that he thought were mountains were really only hills. And he had lost the wonder of the mountains. And the raging rivers, they were really just really trickling streams. But whenever he was five, six years old, a kid, you're there, these trickling streams are like raging rivers. And then this, this, this dusty path that was really just a dusty path, when he was a child, it was this huge, wide road that led to no telling where it led to, to Kansas City, to, to San Francisco, to Calcutta. It was just this unimaginable road. But he realized it was just a crooked, old, dusty path. And so in light of that poem, let me ask you a question. Have you ever lost the wonder? I remember when I took my kids to Disney World. And everyone who's been to Disney World knows exactly where I'm going with this. You lose the wonder really quickly as a parent. Because you realize that Disney World is just a place of chaos and money spending and tens of thousands of people cramming around you for your private space. And, and, and you don't know why, after about an hour, why am I here? What, what, have I lost my mind? Who convinced me to bring my children here to Disney World? But in, in, you know, in a kid's mind, it's the wonder of Disney World. It's the Disney princess and the castles and everything's big. When you're a kid, everything is bigger and larger and beautiful and amazing. And then you get older, things cost money. It takes time. And so you, the, the sheen and the shimmer and the shine starts to fade off of things that used to be beautiful and used to bring you wonder and awe. And so, and so it is with the children of Israel in this story in Exodus 16. It's the same thing. They experience the same thing in Exodus 16. And so this is what we like to do. I'd like to read Exodus 16. Read the account of them getting fed in the wilderness with manna. It says, they set out for Elim, which is where we ended off last week. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You know, if anything could characterize people in general. You know, I think the children of Israel are a characterization of humanity. 
doesn't take long. We start grumbling and complaining. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Isn't that drama? I mean, come on. That's like super drama. Like drama queen here. Come on. Would that we have died in, the, in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And so God, they, they complain, they're frustrated, they're over-dramatizing this, and they're saying, we should have died in Egypt. Moses, what did you do bringing us out here? What are you, what, what are you doing? You're trying to kill us here. We're starving. We're in the wilderness. What's going to happen? And God did a miracle, and he provided for them. You know, this, this miracle was a miracle of provision. This was a powerful miracle of provision. Think about that. Think about waking up every day. You go outside of your tent, go outside of your house, and the dew lifts off the ground, and there's manna, food that you can eat. And in the evenings, there's quail, there's meat that just, the quail fly around, and all of a sudden, the Lord kills them, and they all fall. You don't have to shoot a shotgun and to do anything. The birds just die, and you go and you pick them up. All the hunters in here, I think you wouldn't like that because you like to kill things. <laughs> you enjoy the process of shooting animals. And so... This, you'd have been grumbling about that. God, we want to kill them. Just make them come and fly over and like hover and not move and we can shoot them. Whatever it was, it was a miraculous provision. Do you think you'd ever get tired of that? You think you'd ever get weary of going outside of your tent and seeing food every morning that God miraculously provided? You know, that doesn't happen. Unless you like to eat grass. You know, I mean, it's just an amazing thing. And I think for us, when we see that, we think that's bigger than life and unbelievable. And and, and we would never. And if that would ever happen, we, we would never lose the wonder of that. Right. We would never lose the wonder of walking out every day and seeing God miraculously provide for us. So would you ever grow tired of experiencing something like that? What do you think? I, just, I mean, you can be honest. Yeah. You think you grow tired of it? I think you probably would. Every day, manna. Every day, manna. And the other por- portions of the, of the wilderness journeys says that they boiled it and they baked it and they did all kinds of things, different things. I mean, have, manna every day, you gotta get creative. You know, put some Tony Sacheries on it and <laughs> bread it and deep fry it. <laughs> if we, if, this is what God did for us to provide for us. We would find a way to make it unhealthy in South Louisiana, I promise. <laughs> It would be deep fried, breaded and deep fried for sure. But every day, manna. I mean, we complain, Estelle and I complain that we eat the same things every week, like spaghetti and jambalaya and gumbo and, and hamburgers. And like, do we ever, are we ever going to broaden what we eat? And it, we just, we would get tired of it. Every day, manna. But think about it. It's a miraculous provision. We should never get tired of that miracle. Fast forward a year. Fast forward a year, and in Numbers 11, we see a picture of ourselves with the children of Israel. Numbers 11, 4 through 6, it says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. 
And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Oh, that we had variety. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Man, that's some good stuff. That's like gidgeries right there, right? The gidgeries, you could get pre-cut there. It's like gidgeries, except the cucumbers and the melons. (laughs) But now our strength is dried up. And there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. There's not, all I see is manna. I wake up in the morning, it's manna. I go to bed and it's manna. And in the middle of the day, it's manna. It's manna. It's manna. It's manna. It's manna. And, and, and they lost the wonder of the miracle. They lost the awe of the fact that the God of heaven caused bread to grow on the ground. Came down from heaven and be on the, they lost the wonder of that. How does that happen for us where we lose the wonder? They lost the wonder of the miracle of God's provision. The children of Israel had lost the wonder and the awe over the miracle of the manna. They lost the wonder and the awe over the miracle of the manna. So what are some lessons we can learn from the children of of Israel's response to the manna in the wilderness? You know, that's the premise of the series. We're going to look at the, the children of Israel and their wanderings in the wilderness and learn lessons. So what are some lessons? Well, the first overarching lesson is this. And Pastor Derek read the scripture from John 6 that pointed to the overarching lesson. John 6, 48 through 51 says this. Jesus says this about himself. I am the bread of life. Your fathers, the children of Israel, ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The overarching lesson we can learn is the parallel between the manna come down from heaven and Jesus as the eternal bread of life that came down for, from heaven To provide for us salvation and eternal life. That's the overarching lesson. That's the big picture lesson. Jesus is a New Testament fulfillment or picture of the manna in the wilderness. And so that's the big lesson. And that's a powerful lesson. If we stopped right there and that's all we got out of this. And we just thought, we just realized that Jesus is our source of provision and salvation and eternal life. That's a good lesson. But I just think there's something deeper that we can learn. And so in light of Exodus 16... And Numbers 11 and John 6, the picture of Jesus as the bread of life. I have three admonitions for all of us. Three things I want to encourage all of us to think and to consider. And the first one is this. May we never lose the wonder. John 6, 4 through 14 says this. I'm going to read this as a portion of scripture about the feeding of the multitude. In parallel to the feeding of the multitude in the wilderness. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming down toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Stop there just for a second. This crowd that would have gathered would have been somewhere around fifteen to 20,000 people. It's going to mention in just a minute that there's 5,000 men that sit down, but they, w- they, they weren't counting the women and the children. So it would have been somewhere around 20,000 people. And Philip says, 
200 denarii wouldn't be enough that all of these tens of thousands of people to have even a little. And a 200 denarii would have been approximately six to eight months worth of salary for someone common to that day. So what they're saying is six to eight months worth of money to buy food for these people wouldn't be enough that they would each even have a little bit to eat. This is a huge, huge crowd. Let's go back to the text. And one of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have these people sit down. Now there sat, now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about five thousand in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is a miracle of provision. 15, 20,000 people. And Jesus took five loaves and two fish. He blessed it. He broke the bread, the fish, distributed it to the disciples. They distributed it to the people. And not only did they not just have a little leftover, they had 12 baskets full leftover of the fragments that the people did not eat. And all of them had full bellies. All of them were filled. How amazing is that provision? And Jesus, what he's doing there with this feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 10, 15,000, is he's painting a picture and as we go along into John 6, we're, we're, we, we have seen that he's declaring that he's the bread of life. So he's doing this amazing miracle of provision to point to himself. He's doing this amazing miracle of provision and saying, look, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. And it was an amazing provision. And I can do the same. I can feed miraculously thousands and thousands of people. And the point of me doing that is so that you will look to me as the true source of salvation and eternal life. You, I want you to look at me as the Son of God, as God incarnate. And every miracle that God does, the point of it is, is to point to Christ. If you fast, if you fast forward, listen to the response that, that happened after this feeding of this 20,000 people. It's further along in John 6. We're going to keep traveling in John 6. When they found him, this is after the feeding of, of the multitude, Jesus escapes and goes away. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs and you believe in who I am. You're not seeking me be- because of that, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus has the seal of approval from his Father God. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Are you kidding me? What work do you perform? I mean, he just fed almost 20,000 people. And they say, well, if we're going to believe in you, you need to to do a sign. 
They had missed the point of the miracle. Just like the children of Israel in the wilderness had missed the point. They lost the wonder of the miracle. Just fast forward just a little bit of time. And these people had lost the wonder of the miracle of Jesus and what he did in feeding the multitudes. They did not get it. And Jesus continually in the gospels, you see it over and over and over again. He's trying to get the people to see who he is. And all of the miracles, the feeding of the multitudes, the, the, the healing of people that were sick. All of the miracles that he did, they were for one purpose and one purpose alone. It was to confirm that he was the son of God, to confirm that he had come down from heaven and that he was the Messiah and he was going to be the savior of the world. And he and he was coming to do that for people to see that Jesus is trying to communicate to the people that he is the bread come down from heaven, that he is the source of salvation and eternal life. He's trying to communicate that salvation is a miracle. Salvation is a miracle. Just like the feeding of the multitude in the wilderness. Just like the feeding of the 20,000 that Jesus did. He wants them to see the wonder of the miracle and look to him as the source of salvation in life. What was the people's response? What must we do to work the works of God? To have this eternal bread? And that's what mankind does. That's the answer of religion. Religion says, you want to get to God, this holy, infinite God that cannot be approached by sinful humanity? You want to get to that God? you got to crawl your way up. What must we do to get to God? And what did Jesus say the work of God was that they have to do? It was to believe in him. That he is the bread of life. That he is the eternal bread of life. And that is our tendency as humanity, is to try to get to God, to try to get to him by our own good works, by our own self-effort. But we underestimate the fact that apart from Christ, there is no good that dwells in us. We underestimate the fact that we have sinful natures and that on our own, we do not desire God, Scripture says. And so that's what we attempt to do. And the fact that we're saved is a miracle. So my question to you this morning is, is have you lost the wonder Of the miracle of salvation. The fact that you're sitting here. Clothed and in your right mind. And you worship Jesus. If you thought back to what you used to be. And how you used to be bound in sin. And oppression and depression. Suicidal. Addicted. To substances. You had no desire for God. Salvation is a miracle. You cannot save yourself. It's impossible. Here's what scripture says. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, the heart of man is deceitful above all things. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? How would you like to have somebody tell you that before you were a Christian? Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Well, God did it for you. And Jeremiah. Apostle Paul says this. Through the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, God says, the gospel is veiled. It's a veil over the eyes of those who are perishing. The mind of the unbeliever is blinded by the God of this world, Satan. So not only is the unbeliever have, not only do they have a heart that's desperately wicked and bent towards evil, but their mind is blinded. That's why, that's why unbelievers don't want to hear the Bible. Do you guys know that? They don't want to hear this. 
They don't want to hear it until the Holy Spirit begins to open their eyes to see that they have a need for a Savior. But unbelievers don't want to hear God's Word. The Gospel is a message that people do not want to hear. And that's why it's impossible for you to save yourself. It is the work of God. That's what Jesus said in John 6. He said, he said this is... He said, they, they, they said, they asked the question, what must we do? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you would believe. It's the work of God in your heart to open your eyes, to lift the veil that is over your eyes, as it says in 2 Corinthians. Your veil is lifted and you heard the gospel. Through through the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, God says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world. Paul takes it even a step further than Jeremiah and what he said in Corinthians. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead. That's even worse. Not, it's not just spiritual blindness. It's not just a, 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 not a desire to worship God. It's not just any of that. It's the fact that apart from God, you are spiritually dead. Can dead people do anything? Can a dead person raise himself up out of the grave? Can, is that possible? This picture of baptism, that's a picture of salvation. A dead person cannot raise himself up from the dead. He has to be called by God. And that person responds to the gospel and God resurrects them from their spiritual blindness and their spiritual death. Salvation is a miracle. So my first admonition to all of us is may we never lose the wonder of that. Do you know why we lose the wonder? Because we forget what we used to look like. And we think that by our good works even as Christians, that we're obtaining favor from God. I want you to know there's no amount of good works you can do as a believer that can keep God happy with you. He is happy with you because you surrender to the lordship of his son, Jesus Christ. And when you are saved, hear me, when you are saved, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You stand justified before a holy God. And the fact that that is even possible should leave us in awe and wonder. And every time we gather, when we sing these songs about who Jesus is and what he's done and the miracle of salvation and the miracle of his resurrection and his character and his nature, when we, when we gather and we sing these songs, we sing them in unison every Sunday, every Wednesday. And it's this awe and this wonder of what God has done in us and what he desires to do through us. Salvation is a miracle because it is impossible for a deceitful, desperately wicked, spiritually blind, dead man to save himself. Salvation is a miracle because it is impossible for a deceitful, desperately wicked, spiritually blind, dead man to save himself. May we never lose the wonder of the unmerited mercy and grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ. What's the second admonition that we can see that I want to encourage us all with? Number two, may we never love the things of this world. May we never lose the wonder of salvation, but also may we never love the things of this world. Let's look back at Numbers 11. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. 
We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. When you begin to lose the wonder over God's miraculous provision of salvation, Egypt can start to look appealing. When you begin to lose the wonder of God's miraculous provision of salvation, that's when you start to begin to look over your shoulder. I remember. I I remember that. I remember that was fun. I remember I used to enjoy those things. And the pull of Egypt, the shine and the shimmer and the gloss of Egypt, and the things of this world can begin to tug on you when you lose the wonder of the miracle of salvation. This is what happened with the children of Israel. This is, this is a valuable lesson for us. The shine of Egypt that had grown dull in our hearts can easily glisten brighter and brighter if we continue to look in its direction for soul satisfaction. You know, you know the world doesn't satisfy. You know, unbelievers, they, they run to and fro all over the world looking for soul satisfaction, looking to be satisfied in their heart deep down, that deep down place where they know they're empty, where they know they're missing something. You know, Tom Brady did an interview. And Tom Brady was talking, they were talking about all of his accomplishments. He had won three, four Super, three, four Super Bowls. And he was good looking. He had a supermodel wife, millions of dollars. He has big houses and he vacations in all the fancy places you want, you'd want a vacation in. And the interviewer asked him something like this. Basically, what else is there out there for you to, to do and to accomplish? And Brady basically said, basically said this. He said, there's something that I'm missing. There's something out there and I don't know what it is. I don't know what I'm missing, but there's something that I'm missing that I don't have. And so the, inter- the interviewer said, well, what do you think it is? He said, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And I want to remind me and to remind you that that is true. Look at the most. He, Tom Brady and his wife, they're the picture of beauty and athleticism and wealth and fame and fortune. They have it all. And he still says, there's something missing and I have no clue what it is. We need to be told that. Because look, when we look at the world, when we look at the Bradys, and we look at the rich people, and we look at the people who have achieved great big things in this life, and we see all of that, it is, it can be a temptation for us to look over our shoulder and say, maybe we're missing something. Maybe, maybe this Jesus walk isn't, isn't gonna fulfill every desire in my heart. Maybe I will not be completely satisfied with Christ. But the pull of the world, the pull of the world, the lure of Egypt, it's empty in its, in its fulfillment. In the end, there's emptiness. When you reach the top of the mountain, there's somebody else that went a little bit higher than you. When you've made the most amount of money you think you could ever make, there's somebody that's going to be richer than you. When you have a, a beautiful spouse, somebody else is going to get somebody you think is more beautiful than yours. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. 
And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So God says in his word that we should not love the world. That word world there, in that context, it means this. The invisible spiritual system of evil dominated by Satan and all that it offers in opposition to God, his word, and his people. That's the world that we are not to love. When Jesus tempted When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he said, I'll give you everything. All the kingdoms of this world and its power and its authority. You can have it all. And Jesus answered that temptation and said, no. No, this is what God's word says. And this is what we need to do. That's what protects us from the lure of Egypt. Is staying grounded in God's word. How do we not lose the wonder? We stay connected to the body of Christ. We stay connected to people who can slap you on your face. Who can say, what are you doing? Wake up. You know that's empty. You know that doesn't satisfy. There's something special about having a brother and a sister in Christ. When they see you going in a direction that that doesn't lead to to satisfaction in Christ, they can grab you and say, wake up. Wake up. The, 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 The lore of Egypt, the shine of Egypt caught your eye. It glimmered for a second. It glimmered for a second. And it caught your eye. But remember... Remember the truth that you know. Remember the word of God. Remember that God's word is true. And remember that God loves you. And he only wants the best for you. And he's not holding out any goodness from you. He's not holding out any satisfaction from you. The world wants you to believe that that is the case. But it's not true. It's not true. The the things of this world can also be good things. You know, back in Numbers 11, it says that they looked back at Egypt and they, they wanted the fish. Is fish bad? What about cucumbers and melons? I like cucumbers. I like melons. I like garlic, and garlic is awesome. Great seasoning. I like leeks and onions. You know, sometimes, sometimes even the good things can become idols in our life. They can distract from the wonder of God. I like cucumbers, melons, and onions, and garlics. These are good things. But good things can become ultimate things that influence us to divert our affections from Christ. You know, there there are people who who will make an ultimate thing out of their... Now, hear me, okay? I want you to hear my heart. They will make an ultimate thing out of their family. And they'll say that that's what it's all about. And they won't go to church. Or they will go sporadically. And they won't make it a priority because it's all about my family. It's all about spending time with my family. Making sure that I'm a good father and a good husband and I'm there for them. And that's a good thing. Like the cucumbers and the melons and the onions. You were called to be great husbands and fathers and mothers We're called to raise children to honor God. But at the end of the day, if you raise kids that follow your pattern of not consistently honoring God with your time and your devotion, then you are training them to follow that pattern. And in the next generation, they they might not even go to church. So you can make you can take a good thing, make it an ultimate thing and miss the point. So at some point in our lives as, as, as families. We make a priority and we say, because of the wonder of salvation, because of what Christ has done in me, we prioritize a relationship with Christ. 
We prioritize our relationship with the body of Christ. And we make it our aim to worship God consistently. And then we model that for our kids. Even the good things can become ultimate things that influence us to divert our affections from Christ. So, the first admonition was that may we never lose the wonder of the miracle of salvation. May that never dwindle in our eyes. And secondly, may we never love the things of this world. They do not satisfy. The things of this world are not meant to give us ultimate satisfaction. And then thirdly, and finally, number three, third admonition is this. May we always look to Christ. John 6 31 through 35 says this. It says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. I love this. this Jesus, this is so good. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And if you continue on in John 6, they keep questioning him and going back and forth with him. And Jesus finally says it in such a way that people can't handle it. In John 6, 66, Jesus tells them, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You have no part in me. He brought it to the ultimate position, the ultimate place of of complete surrender to Jesus, unless you go to the extreme. He didn't literally meant eat his flesh and drink his blood. He meant that you are recognizing ultimately who he is, this ultimate commitment that he is the son of God. That's what he was wanting to get them to. And it was a hard saying. It says that many that followed him that day, it says in John 6, they left. And then Jesus turned after these other stragglers left whenever discipleship got a little too hard. when When discipleship got a little too hard, they left. They proved who they really were. The ones that were there... Jesus looked at him and says, are you going to go too? He looked at the 12. What about you? Are you going to leave? And what did Simon Peter say? Where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? You have the only words that satisfy. You have the only words that bring eternal life. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. We have come to believe and to know that you are the son of the living God. Where are we going to go? And that's our cry as Christians today, this morning. And this is what I wanted to press on my heart and on your heart. Where else can we go? Where else can we go? He miraculously saved us. He has given us peace and joy and satisfaction and happiness. We can lay our head down at night in our bed and we can rest assured that I am his and he is mine. And I'm right with my father. I have peace in my heart and passion in my life. And the world has nothing to offer that can satisfy like that. Hear me this morning. Nothing. And those of you who are believers, this is a reminder to us. The world can shimmer and it can shine and it can glisten and it can look good and appealing. But it doesn't satisfy. And those of you who are non-believers here this morning, my encouragement to you is this, is to believe this. Know that it's true. 
Open your heart to say, yes, I know it's true. I've experienced the emptiness of the things of this world. And I know that they don't satisfy. You know, Jeremiah chapter 2 paints a picture of this for us. About why we may all, what may we, why we may should always look to Christ. May we always look to him. Here's a picture of brokenness in Jeremiah 2. Verses 11 through 13. This is God crying out to the nation of Israel through the weeping prophet Jeremiah. So we see the picture of the nation of Israel in Exodus and in, in Numbers and we see their wanderings and their rebelliousness and, and, and their complaining and their, and their wandering. And this is the heart cry of God to the nation. Has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are no gods? You remember, you remember in Exodus, whenever Moses went up to the mountain and the, they, they, and the people said, he's been gone too long, Aaron, what are we going to do? We need something to worship. So Aaron said, oh, take off all your jewelry, all your gold. And we're going to throw it in the fire. And they, and they made a golden calf and they worshiped it. They worshiped false gods. They made their own gods. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not Prophet, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Verse 13 is so powerful. For my people have committed two evils. Here's the first evil that the nation of Israel had committed. For my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They had forsaken the God of miracles that rescued them from Egyptian bondage. And secondly... They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's a picture of what we do when we look over our shoulders at Egypt. And we think maybe this time it'll satisfy. It's like you're taking a, you're taking a shovel and you're digging this cistern out. But you don't realize that that cistern is always going to be broken. And you put water in there to try to get sustenance and life from it. But all the life-giving water falls out of that cistern because it is an empty well that can never satisfy. May we always look to Christ for soul satisfaction. It's broken cisterns, broken wells. And there's something in our hearts. There's something in our hearts. If we're not careful, our hearts will stay connected to the things of this world. And we'll think, we'll think we can go back to the broken cisterns and the broken wells. And we will, listen to me, you will find out that it's broken. You'll find out that it's empty. You, find, you will find out that it, there's no soul satisfaction. I want to read this quote from DesiringGod.com article. It's a couple paragraphs here. It says, dissatisfaction in life is near the root of all kinds of evil. Why do people cheat on their spouse, abuse drugs and alcohol, mindlessly binge watch ridiculous amounts of television, scroll endlessly on Facebook and Twitter, steal or commit suicide? All of these things and more happen because people haven't found satisfaction or happiness. At the, root of our uh, at the root of our dissatisfaction is a never-ending thirst for nothing in, that, that nothing in this world can satisfy. We've been duped into thinking that a better job, more money, 
cooler friends, another spouse, or a new life is really what we need. And if we can't obtain any of these things, or when they leave us dissatisfied, we resort to to drug abuse, to sexual immorality, or to senseless entertainment. And I think that's true. That's what we do. It's the pattern of humanity that we're looking for soul satisfaction, looking for peace. And those of us who have found it in Jesus Christ, my encouragement to you this morning is this, is that you found it. And don't let the, the enemy tempt you to look back at the world. Don't let the enemy tempt you to think that you're missing something. If you're a teenager here this morning, hear, hear what I'm saying. It's true. Don't wait till your early 20s and you finally figure it out. Know it now. Live passionately as a teenager for the God who satisfies. If you're, if you're not a Christian here this morning, and you don't, you, Jesus is not your Lord, you're here, you're visiting, you're checking it out. God's been drawing you by His Spirit. My heart cry to you this morning is that you would believe that Jesus loves you. That you would believe that He is not a broken cistern. That He holds within Himself the fountain of living waters. And He can satisfy your thirst. He can satisfy your hunger, the inward longing that you have. That you, that you know, just like Tom Brady, I've done lots of things, but there's still something empty in me. That satisfaction that you're looking for can only be found in Jesus. John Piper has famously said this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. I want you to worship with me. Just stand to your feet. So I
don't know Jesus here this morning and you want to surrender to Jesus and this message has echoed in your heart and you, you, you know that that's you I don't have to try to convince you you know it's you and you want to surrender to Jesus can you just lift your hands with me just lift, just lift your hands is there anybody thank you thank you anybody else anybody else anybody else just keep, just keep your hands lifted for a moment Anybody else? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I want to pray for you. If you lifted your hands, I just want to pray for you. Just make your way down front. I want to agree with you in prayer as you surrender to, to Jesus as your Savior. If you didn't raise your hands, the Lord's tugging on your heart. Just make your way down front. We want to pray with you. Come on. You can, you can, you can come. You can come. You can come. You can come. Just... Just come down here. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else? You know, salvation is a miracle. salvation is a miracle it's a miracle of God it's a miracle of God that you were here God was tugging on your heart and what you sense in your heart that longing that desire that you have that was from the Lord who was pulling on your heart his Holy Spirit had come and, and he was he was listening, speaking to you through his word God pierced your heart and you said yes that's what I want you surrendered you're surrendering by faith to Jesus and so I'm going to agree with you in prayer I'm going to get you to pray a prayer after me and those that are here they're going to pray with us and this is just a simple acknowledging of what is in your heart the prayer doesn't save you did, did y'all know that right the prayer doesn't save you it's your heart that does it's the faith in your heart that saves you it's not the words because I could pray it differently than Pastor Renee prays it the prayer doesn't save you it's your, it's your heart that saves you let's just close your eyes and we're going to pray just repeat this prayer Lord Jesus I acknowledge that you are the only one that satisfies. I, I, I recognize this morning that you are the Savior. You are the Son of the living God. You were crucified on the cross. You were buried, but you rose from the dead. And you are seated at the right hand of the Father. I confess this. I pray that you come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Thank you that the Holy Spirit now lives in me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. want to get baptized well you can sign up you can sign up and when we get when we do baptism again you can get baptized amen bless you and look y'all y'all talk y'all talk with pastor freddie and sister nadine and they're going to get your information and give you a bible amen thank you guys you guys are dismissed and i'm falling on my knees offering all